Our Psalter reading is from Psalm 41 and can be found on page 469 in the Bibles we provide. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, A deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel reading and sermon text is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, and can be found on page 831 in the Bibles we provide. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I wanted to begin uh, by sharing a a picture from Instagram that a young friend of mine recently posted. I will call him Robert. I met Robert eight years ago when he joined the Emerald Youth Foundation swim team. Robert never knew his father. His mother struggles with addiction. Robert came, he quickly learned to swim, Uh, I began to drive him and two other boys to practice. He's a delightful young man, and uh, over the years, we've spent 
hundreds of hours at the pool and water skiing, going to football and basketball games. I really love Robert. About two years ago, Robert started to pull away. He stopped coming to practices. Uh, When I invited him to go uh, to the game last fall, he didn't return the call. And then he posted this picture um, a few months ago, and uh, it's of marijuana on his uh, pant leg. And the caption reads, Come Shop Deals. Now, Robert is now a drug dealer. I want to talk to you this morning about the ministry of mercy. And one of the reasons I wanted to begin with the story of Robert is I'm going to talk to you out of my own story as well as from the text this morning. And it's a story that has uh, some hope and a lot of heartbreak. And so if you're wondering why today feels perhaps a little incomplete or uncertain, uh, it's because I've got a lot of Roberts in my life. But the story is not over with Robert. When I graduated from seminary in 1987, um, I did not think that mercy ministry was a part of gospel ministry. I felt that uh, liberal churches did that, and that churches that talked about it were compromising the gospel. Um, One of the books that God used to correct my thinking was Tim Keller's Ministries of Mercy. And uh, Tim Keller defines mercy ministry like this. The ministry of mercy is the meeting of felt needs through deeds. An agent of the kingdom, the church seeks to bring substantial healing of the effects of sin in all areas of life, including psychological, social, economic, and physical. Mercy to the full range of human needs is such an essential mark of being a Christian that it can be used as a test of true faith. Mercy is not optional or an addition to being a Christian. Rather, a life poured out in deeds of mercy is the inevitable sign of true faith. This is a passage this morning about the great judgment. And in it, we, we learn what the authentic marks of true faith are. And one of them is Mercy. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, all the angels will be with Him. Then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate one from another, as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. And then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is about the second coming of Christ. Christ sits on the throne. All the people who have ever lived are gathered before him. Uh, In Palestine, a shepherd would each night sort out the sheep from the goats and put them in different pens, and that's the metaphor here. On the judgment day, the sheep are put on the right, the goats are put on the left, the position of judgment. And Jesus orders the group of people on his right, the sheep, to come to him, and he calls them blessed, and he says that they're 
going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, a shepherd had to know the difference between a sheep and a goat. What does the king look for to, to see who the true believer is from the, the believer who's professing but doesn't truly attain faith? He looks for the practices of mercy. And Jesus gives six that would have been very familiar to any Old Testament reader. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now, is Jesus in any way saying uh, they did these things and that's why they get into heaven? Uh, No, you have to read Matthew next to Paul, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved by faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God, not as a result of works, so no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Matthew is talking about the application of what Paul is talking about here. We are not saved by acts of mercy, but people who truly are in relationship with Christ, that will be expressed in some capacity by mercy flowing out of their lives. James puts it like this, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So I think this is what the last part of our passage is about when Jesus says to the, to the goats, uh, I, I didn't know you. And they say, well, what do you mean you didn't, we didn't know you? And he said, I didn't see, I didn't see any fruit. I didn't, I didn't see the, the mercy that's been given to you poured out into other people's lives. I, I just didn't see it. Um, theologian James Cone, I think, captures the heart of this. He says, the bottom line is this. How we use the gifts God has given us says more about what we believe to be true about God than what we actually say we believe to be true about God. Now, in Matthew, uh, the king says that the the true Christian has been blessed by the Father, and that's a perfect passive participle in the Greek. It means the people who have been blessed and continue to be blessed, and that's important because he's not saying, I'm going to bless you now because you've led such a merciful life. He's saying... You have experienced the blessing of salvation. You've come into a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And because you have known mercy, your life naturally expresses mercy to your neighbor. You feed the hungry because God has fed your soul. You give drink to the thirsty because God satisfied your deepest thirst. You love prisoners because you've been set free from the prison house of sin. I want to stop here just for a moment because this is so, so, so important. If anything we do in mercy ministry is born out of shame or some sense that I should feel bad about my life because other people are suffering 
and so I ought to go do something good, or because somebody told a testimony and it moved me and I feel terrible now, and so now I've got to go do something, that will be a stench in the nostrils of God, and it's offensive to the people you serve. That is not where mercy ministry comes from. It comes from an abiding relationship with Christ. Early in my ministry, maybe the first year, I did this exercise. I tried to find it. I couldn't find it. But I, I said, I'm going to write down what a mature disciple looks like. Then I'm going to give it to all our staff. And so as we try to practice spiritual formation, we can know what the target is. And I couldn't find it, but I remember it because I worked hard on it. And I said the things you're supposed to say. I talked about Bible study and prayer and evangelism and integrity. But I distinctly remember there was nothing in that definition of a mature disciple about mercy. And yet Jesus, when he's, when he's thinking of the one characteristic he thinks of, of a genuine believer, he calls it mercy. And so I told you I'd tell you a little bit about my journey towards mercy. My journey began with a theological shift, and that shift began with Tim Keller's book, Ministries of Mercy. And uh, if you haven't read it, uh, I'd encourage you maybe to do so. Well, the ministry of mercy normally requires going somewhere outside of your normal comfort zone or your normal sphere of relationships. Now, it might be somewhere on your block. It might be the single parent on your block. It might be your father's nursing home. Uh, it might be the soccer team that your child is on. But it usually involves going somewhere. Uh, I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And often it will look like going to another part of our city to serve. For example, so many of you for years now, have faithfully gone to Lonsdale uh, to serve there. That's what mercy ministry is. It's going. Tom Skinner was an evangelist in the 70s who preached powerfully about mercy ministry. And uh, here's, here's what he talks about the importance of going. He says, if you tell a Christian about the social issues of Harlem, he'll say, Christ is the answer. Yes, Christ is the answer. But Christ has always been the answer through somebody. It has always been the will of God to saturate the common clay of man's humanity and then send that man in open display to a hostile world as a living testimony that is possible for the invisible God to make himself visible in a man. So mercy ministry involves going. Tom Skinner passed away. Tom has a brother, Dr. Johnny Skinner. Johnny is still the pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church in East Knoxville. And Dr. Skinner moved here about the time I did. He became a mentor and a friend. He was raised and trained in a powerful church in Brooklyn under one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, Gardner Taylor. And one of the things that I noticed about Johnny is that his ministry involved both preaching the gospel and practicing mercy ministry in his neighborhoods. I remember going into the projects near his church with him one day, and it was very impacting for me. And inspired and challenged by Johnny, I decided I would start to tutor at Maynard Elementary School in Mechanicsville, 
And my kids were at Rocky Hill Elementary at the time. The difference, and I know it's different today, but the difference in the two schools was shocking to me. It was raining that day. There were a couple of big buckets in the hallways because the roof leaked. There were puddles on the floor. There was paint peeling. The teachers were heroically dealing with hardly any supplies at all. And I, I came away thinking, wait a minute, my kids are in school this morning five miles away in the same school district. How can this possibly be? Around the same time, several friends of mine, uh, Chris and Cindy Martin, uh, Adrian and Kathy Gonzalez, and John and Tony Lawler moved into Mechanicsville. And John said, hey, why don't we prayer walk on uh, uh, Tuesday mornings? And so uh, I'd really never spent any time in a, in a vulnerable urban neighborhood. And so we started to do it very early in the morning. And I couldn't believe what was going on. Uh, there were prostitutes finishing up their tricks. There were drug dealers wrapping up their last deal. There were syringes lying on the school playground. And I just remember thinking, wait a minute, I live five miles away. How can all this be happening? And of course, you know that just because of the way our city's laid out, you could spend your whole life and never be exposed to vulnerable neighborhoods. And I had done that. And I know there are needs everywhere. I truly understand that. There are needs north, south, east, and west. But I do think it's important to become aware of all the needs in your community. I'm not saying we all have to go somewhere else to serve, but I just think as a disciple, just like we need to know what's going on around the world, we need to know what's going on in our community. Your church provides a wonderful way to do that, it's called Come Serve With Us, and this summer, you could do it all summer long or a few times, you can get a chance to partner with several of your ministry partners all over the city, and if you don't know what mercy ministry looks like for you, you could start to pray about that. Martin Luther King explained why it's important that we know a little bit about what's going on all over the city in his letter from the Birmingham Jail. In a real sense, he says, all life is interrelated. All men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. Well, these six practices of mercy ultimately are just talking about love. Um, and love is one of the marks of a believer. Here's how John says it in his first epistle. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart to him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So love always assumes a relationship, right? Ultimately, what we're talking about here is, is a relationship. 
And uh, I had a wonderful talk with uh, Catherine Ann Holt this week, who does such a tremendous job leading your home missions effort. Um, you may not realize it, you're the leader of one of the largest nonprofits in the city because your church is so generous, almost a million dollars a year you give away. And we were both talking about this principle, and I want to state it gently but hopefully forcefully. Mercy ministry happens best in the context of a long-term incarnational relationship. It's about relationship. Mercy ministry happens best in the context of a long-term incarnational relationship. And, and you all have been doing this very well in so many ways. CARM Serenity Shelter, the Refugee Ministry, Thrive Lonsdale, beautiful examples. I want to discourage you. I want to ask you to stop drive-by compassion. One stop, you go down, you drop it off, you head out. I, I want to ask you to not do that anymore. It's demeaning to the people that receive it. And you don't get to know the Christ and the person you're giving it to. Long-term incarnational presence is the most fruitful place for mercy ministry. Well, a wonderful young man named Clay Allen uh, and several others started the Emerald Youth Foundation swim team in 2008, I believe it was. And uh, there's Coach Sarah and Coach Bryden. And my kids started coaching, and they asked me to coach too. And uh, I started in. And so I think we start our 12th summer uh, in a few months. And by the way, I'm looking for volunteers if you want to help. Um, but now for a warning. If God ultimately shows you where it will, and what it will look like for you to practice ministry, and you actually start to fall in love with the people that you're ministering to, and they start to care for you, you will start to hurt when they hurt. Um, in December 2015, Xavion Dobson died in a, a hail of bullets on a Lonsdale porch. He was protecting his kids from, or his friends, after a basketball game. And Zay swam with Emerald. He was one of our swimmers, as well as a good football player. That same night, another young man, Brandon Perry, was also murdered by gunfire. And I had just gotten to know Pastor Daryl Arnold at Overcoming Believers Church in East Knoxville because we were starting to have gangs coming in and trying to kind of pick off the, uh, our swim kids. And I didn't know anything about that. And so I said, Daryl, I don't know what to do. How do we protect our children from, from, from gangs? And Daryl is a wonderfully gifted, godly man. He became a friend and a mentor. And so after both these young men were killed that week, he called me and he said, we're going to both funerals tomorrow. And, and we did. And so we went to Brandon's first and then to Zay's. Zay's was at Overcoming Believers Church. And uh, it just, and I'll never forget sitting on that platform that night. What I didn't see at the time was that God was using this matrix of relationships and this horrible tragedy to build and grow a vision. That fall, we had lost seven African-American men between the ages of 14 and 23 
to gun violence, seven of them in those neighborhoods. Well, after Zay's death, community leaders gathered around Daryl and a brilliant young leader named Nicole Chandler, and they started to gather kids together and say, what could we do to make you feel safer? And the result was the Change Center, which is a skating rink and a restaurant and an entrepreneurial center and a safe hangout place for young adults. It's been open now about a year and a half. And since it's been open, there have been no deaths by violence in those neighborhoods and a dramatic drop in violent crime. And you may not know it, but you partner with my church and Overcoming Believers Church through your youth group. And once a month, uh, we all host a skate night for youth groups all across the city. And last month, there were 250 kids there from all over the community. So God brought something out of tragedy. Well, the swim team has given me relationships with some very special people. And this has kind of been how I've tried to live out the mercy ministry. And I, I wrote about my relationship with a, with a young man that I called Martin in a 2013 Christianity Today essay called Rethinking the $3,000 Mission Trip. Uh, <laughs> Andy Warhol said that you're famous for 10 minutes, and that was my moment. That went viral, and I'll, I hope it never happens again. Um, but <laughs> I am not opposed to missions trips. I, I wrote the article just to say that there are great needs here at home, and we don't always need to fly overseas at great expense to serve. Um, here's how I uh, began the essay. Painfully thin for his age, Martin shivered uncontrollably by the side of the city's swimming pool. He held his sides in a futile effort to keep warm. I was puzzled. A rare June heat wave had swept through Knoxville, and the temperature was pushing 90. A few weeks later, Martin squeezed in beside me on the bus ride to our first swim meet. He was a wiry, bouncy 10-year-old with mischievous blue eyes and a killer smile. We could, he could rarely sit still long enough to hear the workout. Yet today he slumped down against the window and curled into a ball. Coach Doug, Martin asked after a few minutes, can I have my dinner now? I haven't eaten in two days. A father of four, I know a con when I see one. Nobody, I teased, you need to wait till after the meet like everybody else. The summer got even hotter, and Martin kept shivering. One evening, a social worker who knew Martin dropped by the pool, and I asked her if she knew why Martin always shivered. She pulled me aside and whispered, it's because he is literally starving. The woman he lives with told a judge that she was starving the devil out of him, and I felt sick. Well, Martin had a, had a great summer, at least I, I thought he did, and I, I ended the essay with these words about how our summer ended. Martin never stopped shivering that summer, but he did start swimming faster. I made some calls to see if Martin might join a year-round swim program. The local swimming community was eager to help. Then Martin stopped showing up. Nobody his house returned our calls, and Martin missed the rest of our meets. 
At our year-end swim banquet, he gave, we gave Martin the most improved swimmer award. He wasn't there to receive it. A friend and I drove the award to his house after the banquet. After many knocks, a man answered the door. He wasn't happy to see us. We handed him Martin's trophy, and I told him how well Martin swam. I don't know where he is, the man said, and he shut the door. When I uh, submitted that to, to the editor at Christianity Today, she said, you know, this is, a, this is a great article, but you can't end it like that. Um, and, and I said, well, that, but that's the whole point. This is what this kind of work is, is like. And she said, all right, but I don't like it. And so, so we ended it, ended it like that. Um, thankfully, God had a different ending, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. I want to point out one more verse here. The king says to the people of mercy in verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. <laughs> Have you ever thought much about that? I didn't realize it, but Christ was next to me on the, on the bus that night. One theologian calls this the sacrament of neighbor, that we encounter Christ in our neighbors. When, when uh, we started All Souls, my kids were in middle school and high school, and I remember being very worried about how they would grow in faith because we had incredible youth pastors, incredible resources and trips and climbing walls and you know, every, everything kids need, you think. And uh, we went down to All Souls, we started a church, we didn't have any resources. And I remember thinking, are my kids going to you know, really lose their faith? But what we did have was uh, an incredible team of volunteers. We had a wonderful pat pastor named Patrick. And since he didn't have any resources, our whole youth program just became discipling the kids on mission. I mean, we didn't have smoke machines or rock concerts or, or anything. We just went out into the city and served, and Patrick would disciple them as they were serving. And I'm, I'm very humbled and thankful that um, all four of my children are walking with Christ today. And I'm really thankful um, that my kids were raised in that kind of a youth ministry. And I, uh, I don't know why they're still walking with Christ, but here's my theory. I think they met Jesus in the faces of the vulnerable. And I don't mean to be critical at all, and I know you have a wonderful youth ministry. I referred somebody here this week and love your youth pastors. I have some of the fruit of your youth ministry in my church, some of the godliest people I've ever met. Sometimes, in my experience, youth ministry can be a little bit narcissistic or a little bit entertainment-oriented or you're just kind of narrow, and or even kind of, hey, it's all about, you know, don't have sex, don't run around with the wrong kids, and hang on till you get through college. And my children, thankfully, heard some of that, but I think they got a much bigger vision of what Christianity is all about. It's actually about joining God and healing the world. And I think maybe that's why they're hanging on to it. 
Well, I do want to end by, by sharing one more hopeful story with you. And, and by, the, by the way, I've really struggled with how to tell this story because my story is not your story. And the last thing I want to ever do is sort of make something that happens to me normative. But it is my story, and I care about you, and I want to, want to tell you about it. Before the last story, let me just review the points we've hit today. Mercy ministry flows naturally out of our relationship with God. It's not a program. It's not a way to earn our salvation. It's something that comes naturally out of your relationship with God. Mercy ministry motivated by guilt, pressure, or shame will hurt you and the people you serve. Mercy ministry can happen anywhere. Mercy ministry is really about love. Mercy ministry involves a long-term incarnational presence. Mercy ministry connects us to Jesus in a deep and powerful way. Mercy ministry looks different for everyone. Mercy ministry might take place on your block or in a neighborhood you have to drive to. God will show you. Well, um, Martin's real name is Markel. Uh, he has a lovely sister named Kiana. If one of the worst days of my life, <clears throat> it, <clears throat> if one of the worst days of my life was losing Markel, one of the best was the day that he and his sister were adopted by Caroline and Paul. Fortenberry. Uh, because of tremendous life stresses, Markel and Kiana's dear mother made a mother's ultimate sacrifice and gave them up for adoption. Uh, the family is with us this morning, and I invite them up so that I can ask them to share. You know, we, we've just been talking about, uh, about how this is not uh, a program or it just comes out of a natural walk with Christ. And could you just share for a moment uh, how God did this in and through and for you guys? Yeah, sure, Doug. You can just tell them. I think the first thing we want to share whenever we tell our story is that we, we hope it doesn't come off as very radical or far off because that was never our intentions. Um, and, and just it was always taking one step at a time and listening to God. And our story started a few years after Caroline and I were married. We decided to uh, work in an orphanage in Ethiopia for a couple of years. And Caroline had always been open, to, uh, not a year, shoot, <laughs> Woo, a couple weeks. <laughs> that would have been weird, a couple weeks. <laughs> Did I say that last time? A no, okay. um, couple weeks. And Caroline had always been open to adoption and I had just never thought about it. Um, good, bad, neutral. I had just never thought about adoption. And while we were over there and seeing the need and depravity, God really opened my heart to um, thinking about one day being adoptive parents. And so we came back and we started down the path of international adoption. And we were in that process for several years. But throughout that process, we had door after door closed on us. And eventually, Ethiopia essentially closed doors to international adoption. And during that time, as we think God was closing doors, he was also opening them in other ways, and he was opening our hearts to domestic adoption. 
and foster care. So we took PATH classes, which are classes required by DCS to be able to foster children. And when we finished that up, we were on the car ride home and we both agreed that that was not for us, that it was really scary and really big and we were way in over our heads. So we really didn't think about that anymore until Caroline got a call from one of her friends. So my friend Sarah that you saw earlier, um, who coaches with Bryden for Emerald Youth, she was one of my friends growing up. We swam competitively together. And she called and said, there's these two kids that I love so much and they need to be adopted. I was like, okay. She said, they're 12 and nine. <laughs> and Paul and I are like, what? We are 28 years old, no kids, don't know what we're doing. Like, there's no way that that's the rest of the story for us. And so I reached out to everyone I knew in the adoption world. And I said, there's these kids that need to be adopted and I'm praying for their family and maybe you're it. And, um, and God just kept saying, no, you take the next step. And so we did, and he opened door after door after door. I mean, there's, I could name probably 15 miracles um, that God just very clearly said, well, not in the time, these are your children, but take the next step, which eventually, eventually led to these are our children. And so, um, yes, we met in the Kmart parking lot, and we went to McDonald's. That was the first time we ever met. And then about a month later, we started fostering. That was, I guess, five years ago this April, and then we adopted in December. And I guess our story is, is a story of God's faithfulness, because like I said, we were 28 years old, had no idea what we were doing. I felt like all these people had this training and stuff that we were lacking, but he just told us to take the next step, and he provided um, everything that we needed and continues to. So, yep, that's it. Thank you all so much. Mm -hmm. I think the, the thing I want you to hear out of that is they just said, what's the next step? It's not going to look like that for, for you, but what's the next step for you and responding to mercy ministry. Let's pray. Father, I, um, I want to pray first of all for the, the dear ones here that have been laboring in mercy ministry for years. Um, this church has got hundreds of them. None of this is new for them. And they discerned your call years ago. Maybe some of them are here for a missions conference, and maybe they're kind of tired, and it's hard to stand behind a booth and put a smile on. And I pray that for them and, and others like them, that this would just be a renewing, refreshing, encouraging week. That, that they, would, they would hear you say to them, I am so thankful for your life. I love you so much, dear one. I'm so thankful. Nobody knows what it's like to go over to Thrive and tutor and have your heart broken. And Nobody knows. I know. I see it. I think that's what God would say. I see it. I know. It doesn't matter if nobody else knows. I know. Be encouraged, blood. And Lord, if... The, there's some here that are just wondering, I, don't, I just feel overwhelmed. I've got three kids. I, I'm, I'm just overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. I don't need another thing to do. God, free them, from, free them from that. This sermon isn't about that. 
It might be as simple as just texting a sick aunt. Lord, this needs to be all of grace, all of the spirit, all of love, not of the law. Please show us the next step. Your name. Amen.